we get started, before we get started in First, uh, first Thessalonians 3, most of us here have, have seen children trying to learn to walk. Sometimes it's kind of funny, sometimes it's a bit painful, <laughs> sometimes you want to go help, um, but they've got to learn to stand, they've got to learn to balance. They scoot around for a while, then they start grabbing a hold of furniture and pulling themselves up. They're building those muscles, and they need to learn to stand. But you have to learn to stand before you can walk. Because we all know, once they start pulling themselves up, oh, they're starting to stand, they're going to be walking in the next few months. Because standing leads to walking, and walking is where we need to be. But even in our spiritual lives, as we grow, we need to learn to stand. And God wants us to stand up in our faith. Well, why? Why do we need to stand up in our faith? There are two reasons believers need to stand in their faith. These are what we're going to look at. Uh, to withstand opposition and to be proved blameless. And we're going to see this as Paul brings these things out in 1 Thessalonians 3. We're going to work all, our way through all 13 verses, but we're going to break these up a little bit. We're going to start in um, verses 1 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 8. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Then no one should be shaken by these aff afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before, when we were with you, that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you will always, be, will always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our, our affliction and distress, we are comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. So verses 1 through 8, we see that one of the reasons we need to stand in our faith is to withstand opposition. To withstand opposition. In this section, Paul explains his thoughts expands his thoughts from the previous section, starting uh, from chapter 2, verse 17. Really, verse, uh, chapter 2, 17 kind of extends all the way down through chapter 3, verse 8. It's all kind of combined there. So this is kind of an expansion on that. He explains here how he and the others were forced to leave that young church, and this caused Paul and Silas a certain amount of worry and concern for these young believers. In Acts 17, we're, we're reminded that Paul was taken by, from Athens by himself from Berea um, and, and taken down to Athens, while Silas and Timothy remained in Berea. 
Once in Athens, through that Berean escort, he has sent word back that Silas and Timothy should join him there in Athens as soon as they could. Now, during this time of waiting for his team, Paul engages the Athenians in the marketplace and then delivers his sermon on the Areopagus or on Mars Hill, there in chapter 17, verses 22 to 34. Acts 18 picks up as if Silas and Timothy never made it to Athens and they just meet up in Corinth. But it appears that they did. It seems to indicate what we have here is that Silas and Timothy did make it down to, to Athens, and because of their concern that they had for the Thessalonians, they decided to send Timothy back up to Thessalonica to check on them, to see how they're doing, to, as he put it, to establish and exhort them in their faith. Shortly thereafter, it seems that, that Silas was sent back, uh, possibly to go check on Berea or even up to Philippi to see how they're doing. And then in Acts 18, when Silas and Timothy meet Paul in Corinth, is where Timothy brings this report that, that Paul re references here. Paul sent Timothy to Thessalonica. And he, he gives that, he says, we could no, when I could no longer stand it, we sent Timothy. There, they had concern over how the church was doing. So they sent Timothy. And then he gives a very high opinion of Timothy here. And it's a bit odd that Paul would give Timothy's credentials here to a church that would have known him well. But in this follow-up letter, after Timothy had been there, I think it's also likely that, that Paul lists the re uh, gives this list, or gives his opinion of Timothy as a way to reassure the Thessalonians of their importance to Paul. He sent someone who he had a very high opinion of, that who was a close co-worker of him, that he trusted greatly to go check on the Thessalonians. This wasn't just some errand boy that he sent. He calls him our brother and minister of God, our fellow, fellow laborer in the gospel. There's a little bit of uh, change in there. There's some. There's some. Uh, that word could be tra translated a little bit differently. But he's sending not just a mere postman to check on them, but he sends a trusted member of the team, one trusted as an apostolic messenger that came with the authority of Paul. He gives high praise of Timothy, and this indicates his importance to him. He knew sending Timothy was like going himself. This reflects that had Paul been able to go, he would have. But Timothy was not just his errand boy. And it seems that this is the first time that Timothy is sent out to where Paul needs to send him on such a mission. He's recorded as being sent to the Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians 4 and in 16. He's sent, uh, he's referenced being sent in Philippians chapter 2. And of course, in 1 Timothy, he has been sent to Ephesus. Paul trusts him to check on these churches, to help these churches, and to do things the way that Paul expected them to be done, the way that he would have done them had he been able to go. He sends Timothy 
to establish and exhort the church in their faith. Now, the word establish here has the idea of causing one to be inwardly firm or committed. Another way to translate this is to strengthen. Timothy was there to help them be firm or solid in their faith. But Timothy was also there to encourage or to exhort them in their faith by helping them be grounded in the faith. Their word exhort here has the same, was the same one that was used earlier in chapter 2, verse 12, parakaleo. It is likely, the thought here is the idea that was to instill the Thessalonians with courage, to give them courage. Well, why did they need to be strengthened in the faith? Why did they need to be given encouragement or courage in the faith? Well, the first part of verse 3 tells us. The ESV reads that no one be moved by these afflictions. So that no one be moved by these afflictions. Now, the word translated here, shaken or moved, this is the only place in the New Testament that it's used. And its primary meaning in non-biblical text refers to a dog wagging its tail. It refers to a dog wagging its tail to win favor. Thus, it gives the idea of fawning over or giving flattery. So the concern here is not of unbelievers giving hardships, but the concern that's being brought out here is of unbelieving friends and neighbors that are sorry for the believers, clinging to a faith that caused them suffering and hardships. This temptation from well-meaning friends would be difficult to resist. Paul sent Timothy to help ground and encourage the believers as well as making sure they were still walking by faith, that they had not returned to paganism paganism, or to the Jewish system. Paul was not concerned that they lost their salvation. The way that he expressed things in, in, in chapter 1, verse 4, makes that clear, that they are elect of God. He was not concerned that they lost their salvation, which cannot happen, but he was concerned that did they retreat from the faith. Had Satan, the, the tempter, as he will re reference him later, had he used some means, had he lured or tempted them away from the Lord? This temptation looks back not only to the persecution that they were facing, but even the deception that is referred to in verse 3. If this was the case, Paul was worried that their limited work in Thessalonica would have been for nothing. He was worried that the church facing some persecutions and this well-meaning kindness that in some ways is, is a deception from Satan would cause them to say, it's not worth it. Why am I bothering? And to retreat from what they had taught. Yet when Timothy did meet up with Paul in Corinth, as recorded in Acts 18, he brought back this report about the Thessalonians. He brought 
good news. This is the same word that is, that is used for the gospel. He brought good news back about Thessal the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians were standing in their faith, and they were bearing fruit in love. This as he referenced in chapter 1. And not only that, but there was a good remembrance of the missionaries. They, they looked on them with, with, a, with affection and high esteem. They were looking forward to seeing them again, just as much as Paul and Silas desired to get back to Thessalonica and to see them. So this report relieved Paul of his worry and concern for them. In the midst of his hardships and his strain of ministry, ministry, hearing the good news of the Thessalonians' faith comforted Paul. It encouraged him. He sent Timothy to encourage them, but Timothy's report back brought him encouragement. This good news was such a comfort that it was like Paul could really begin to live again. Verse 8 seems to be the shift here for Paul in this chapter. Knowing that these young Christians were standing firm in the Lord, in their faith, brought such joy to Paul. The word that is used here for standing or standing fast has the idea of a firm commitment in conviction or belief. The idea of standing fast in the Lord is that they were standing by conviction in their connection to the Lord. Paul's concern was that this young church was facing hardship and persecution and, and temptation would retreat from their professed faith. The second half of verse 3 and all of verse 4 is kind of a parenthetical reminder that Paul had warned and taught the Thessalonians that afflictions and even persecution was not necessarily a sign of God's disfavor, but a part of every Christian's life. Often these hardships came to help us stand stronger. Paul wanted to be sure that this young church hadn't walked away from their faith that they had claimed while he was there. He knew he was in Thessalonica. We know that he was in Thessalonica for at least three weeks, I think more like a month, maybe a month and a half, two months. But it seems that that limited time that he had there, that he and the others had there, that they were able to instruct the church well enough in such this short time. And Timothy was sent back for a health check to help fill in some gaps, to remind them of certain things. Timothy would have been able to instruct them in some things, but, but this letter was a follow-up to that. Faith is not just something we, we generate in ourselves. It's the Holy Spirit produces it in us, and it is bolstered through the ministry of the Word. Timothy went back to remind them of the Word, to remind them of the things that they were taught, to help bolster that faith. So we see that to stand in the Lord, to stand in our faith, needs to be grounded in the Word. For when we face 
opposition, when we face hardships and afflictions and sufferings, we have that foundation. That we're not going to be influenced by those around us saying we need to forget it, that it's not helpful. Standing up takes balance and solid footing and muscle development. And we need a diet of the word and prayer to help us develop these. But we also need exercise. Like that baby pulling themselves up on the, on the furniture. They're building those muscles. So let's continue on in our growth, becoming more and more grounded and stronger in our faith. Now this brings us now down to verses 9 through 13. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we are with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So the second reason that we need to stand in our faith is to be, is to be proved blameless, to be proved blameless. In this section, Paul shifts his focus from his time with the church and what has been happening since he left to what he expects, the, what he expects in moving forward. Paul's first begins here with a rhetorical question in verses 9 and 10. For what things can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we receive? Rejoice for you's sake before God night and day exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your, in your faith. He brings this rhetorical question and referencing his prayer and thanksgiving again. But we see his joy and gratitude from the good report that Timothy had brought. To boil this down, Paul hears Timothy's report report, and in a burst of joy-filled gratitude, Paul exclaims, thank God. There was such a relief for him. Timothy had brought back such a good report that he was filled with joy. The question that he presents is, since he is filled with such joy from God because of the Thessalonians, what kind of expression of thankfulness can he give to God that is adequate or equal to the gift of joy that he had? He was filled with such joy that, how do I express this thankfulness to you? One author comments here, what would have been his distress of soul if, in addition to all the other loads resting upon his heart, there had come the report that the Thessalonian church had gone to pieces. It would have stunned his weary heart and left him as one dead. Now there comes this report that the young Thessalonian church has not only survived, but is standing firm. What an emotional reversal for Paul's heart. 
which causes him to reach the very heights of joy. Oh, that he could thank God as he ought. That concern and worry that he had for them, on top of all the other ministry strains and all the other pressures that he had on him, the concern over the church, and then to hear Timothy's report just fills him so much with joy that he has a trouble expressing properly all the thanksgiving that he has. But as he continues, he, he continues that he, he keeps praying over the Thessalonians. As the missionaries prayed both during the day and night, they pray that they would be reunited with this dear church so that they may continue to instruct the church as needed, to fill those things in that they weren't able to do. We should note here that this is the first time in this letter that Paul mentions any deficiencies of the church, any place that they're lacking something. Paul has, up to this point, described them as young or new Christians. So it appears that these deficiencies are not from, are, are just from immaturity instead of a wandering or wayward lifestyle. This letter reads very differently than 1 Corinthians. This was very, you guys are a young church, you've been saved, reminding them and thankful for all these things. There's things lacking in your faith, and I want to get back there and teach you these things. 1 Corinthians was, you should have known better. This is not what he's writing to the Thessalonians. This is just some immaturity that we need to, we need to keep building on this. These young Christians were deficient as a child is compared to a grown adult. There's just that, that lack. That's what these Christians are. They're young in the faith. They're young Christians. They're ch children in, the Christ in, in Christianity, as it were. And chapters 4 and 5 will begin to address some of these deficiencies. And, and he will start directing in that direct, uh, directing that way of, hey, these are the things you need to start looking at doing. And be sure you're on the same page here to start building them up. Now in verses 11 through 13, Paul records what his prayer for the Thessalonians is at this point. These verses expand on, or really just amplifies, what he said in verse 10. Now this prayer really contains a couple of distinct requests, two, maybe three. First, that, that Paul and others would be directed, Paul and the others would be directed back to Thessalonica. This has been his wish. He's been referencing this it's verse 17 of, of chapter 2. But secondly, Paul prays that the Thessalonians would increase and bound in love for others. Now, Paul addresses in, in this prayer, he addresses the prayer both to the Father and to the Lord Jesus in such a way that claims both the deity of Jesus and the distinct personhood of both the Father and the Son, yet keeping them within in unity. Oh, how? This verse uses a singular pronoun, himself. 
Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ himself is actually emphatic and he uses this singular pronoun himself and a singular verb that he may direct our paths to you with a plural subject, God and Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is equally divine with the Father, and both are equally sovereign, yet in perfect unity and agreement in all matters. So Paul's prayer here is submitted to the will of God. He knows that the church is managed by the Lord, and that he is directed to go where the Lord sends. So he submits to the divine will, and, but yet he brings his request. I would love to get back there and work with this church. Paul uses two verbs that indicate that his wish or request for the Thessalonian believers that may make you increase and abound in love. So this is the, the second part of his request here, that, uh, that the Lord may make you increase and abound in love. These should be understood as working together, not separately. So we have the verb uh, make, increase, and abound. Okay, They're working together. They are synonyms, and either one by itself would have been sufficient. But using both strengthens this wish, this request. The verb increase is to make more and more, while abound is the idea of having a great abundance or of excess. Both verbs here are used in the sense that Paul is asking that the Lord cause the love of the Thessalonians to be in great abundance and yet increase. But this love was to be for all, starting with the church, but to go out from there. Starting with the church, with and with each other, for one another, but for all people as well. But why does Paul ask that his, their love be increased, increased and not their faith? Faith is referenced five times in this passage, in this chapter. But why is he praying that their love be increased? Love is the fruit of faith. As their faith grows, the natural and tangible evidence is an increase in their love. And not only between themselves as a church body, but between them and others, or toward others. And this would include those opposing and persecuting them as well. Think back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Love your enemies as yourself. Pray for those that are persecuting you. Well, how do you do that? You have, you've got to love them. But that's an evidence of your faith. That comes out of your That's a fruit of your faith. Now, verse 13 is very closely tied to verse 12. And while this is still part of the prayer, verse 13 is more or less the reason or purpose for both requests. But 
more directly to the second request, that their love be abound and increase. Paul asked that he would be able to return and that the love of the Thessalonians would increase and abound. Why? Well, we have the purpose here. So that for the purpose of the Lord establishing or strengthening the hearts of the believers, blameless in holiness. Now, the word establish, this is the same word and the same grammatical construction that we have found in verse 2 when referring to the purpose of sending Timothy to establish you in your faith. This strengthening was for their hearts to be blameless in holiness. Blameless has the idea of being judged acceptable before God, while holiness refers to the state of someone or thing that is sanctified, that is holy, that is set apart. As a justified believer, they are set apart. Before the Lord, they are holy. But to be blameless in that holiness. Paul was praying that the Lord would cause a wealth of love for others would be produced in the Thessalonians so that their lives would be acceptable to God. This is talking about a holy lifestyle, living holy lives. That their devotion and separation to God would be evident. That they would live holy lives. This is connected now to the return of of Jesus. The desire or hope for Jesus' return is a motivation for the believer to live a holy life. In an earlier time, I've said this before, that, that we don't look for the return of Christ so we could get to go out of here, the return of Christ should motivate us, should motivate our evangelism. The return of Christ is for us, but that should put a fire under us to get out and do the work. It should put a fire under us to live the way Christ wants us to, and part of that is our evangelism. But Christ's return is part of our motivation. It's a reward, and we look forward to it, but it's motivation. Paul recounts what he is praying for concern for the Thessalonian church in, in these four or five verses. First, that Paul and the others would be, would be able to return to Thessalonica to help fill in some of the gaps of their teaching, things that they could, just couldn't get to before. And secondly, that the Lord would produce an overflowing wealth of love for each other and others so they will continue in their Christian lives, evidently separated to God, looking for the return of Jesus that would confirm the truth of their position in the Lord. Looking for the return of Jesus that would confirm the truth of their position in the Lord, that they will be proved blameless. 
it is, I think it's likely that the coming of the Lord that Paul references here is the rapture. The promise of Christ's return to rapture the church is a purifying, even a strengthening or stabilizing hope for the church. And knowing when Christ, knowing that when Christ comes to rapture and reward the church, believers' works will be tested, evaluated at the judgment seat, the bema seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. This is a motivation for holy living. Now, some argue that holy ones or, or uh, saints, his saints, at the end of verse 13, refers to angels. Others argue that Zechariah 14, verse 5, is in view, and some find a middle ground and argue that the holy ones refers to both believers and angels when Christ returns to set up the millennial kingdom. Now, while Zechariah 14.5, and I'm not going to read the verse right now, but while that verse may be alluded to here, I believe that the intention was to refer to the saints, to Christians, and not to angels. Holy ones, as a term, is not, the, the word used there, holy for holy ones or saints, is not used in the New Testament for angels. In the New Testament, it is used for believers. And actually, it is quite possible that this phrase, with all his saints, isn't connected to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It might be better to read this way, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father with all his saints at the coming of our Lord Jesus that the, all of his saints is more likely to be connected with being blameless in holiness before God rather than the coming of Christ. Um, so, while, while Holy Ones here is likely referencing all saints, all believers, so while Christ's return is being referred to in verse 13, I think it is likely that the rapture of the church is in view. Now, following the rapture, the believers will stand before Jesus' bema seat or judgment seat and be rewarded for their faithfulness and obedience. 1 Corinthians 3, 11-14 describes that event as a judgment of works. But 1 Corinthians 4, 5 indicates that rewards come on what motivated those works. You did work, you were being obedient and did work for the Lord, great. Was that because you were living a holy lives? Was that because you were motivated by doing what Christ wanted you to do or because you were just trying to get before the Lord? What was your motivation? Paul's reference to the Lord's return at the end of this chapter is a motivation for holy living. And as we look forward to the Lord's coming for the church, that doesn't mean we stop living like Christians. That doesn't mean we stop living holy lives or sharing the gospel or standing on the truths of God's word. We are not done until the Lord calls us home 
or comes for us in the rapture. So just like that infant learning to stand and walk, we need to stand in our faith. God wants us to stand up. And for these two reasons, that we will withstand opposition and be proved blameless. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to close this time together, we are grateful for the truths revealed to us through your word. We thank you for your message of 1 Thessalonians 3, which reminds us of your call for us to stand in our faith. Lord, we recognize that there are that there are a couple of reasons. These are critical reasons for us to stand. And as we have learned today, first, to withstand that opposition in a world that often opposes your, the truth of your gospel and gives us the strength and courage to stand firm in the face of adversity. Grant us the perseverance to remain steadfast in your truths, knowing that you are with us and will never leave nor forsake us. Secondly, we understand that we must stand up in our faith to be proved blameless. Help us to live lives that are pleasing to you, holy and blameless in your sight. May our actions and attitudes reflect the transforming power of your Spirit that is at work within us as we strive to walk in obedience to your word. Lord, as we prepare to go forth from this place, may your truth take root in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives. Strengthen us to be bold and bold witnesses for you, shining as lights in a dark world, pointing others to the hope found in Christ alone. We pray for your continued guidance and protection over us as we seek to live lives that honor and glorify your name. Fill us afresh with your Spirit, empowering us to stand firm in our faith and to live as faithful disciples of Christ. We commit ourselves to get into your hands, trusting in your unfailing love and faithfulness. And may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our final hymn this morning will be How Firm a Foundation.